0: missed being with you last week. Uh, I know you were in uh, having a good time with the uh, picnic and everything. So we were in Jackson with the uh, youth State Youth Honor Choir. My daughter uh, was able to be a part of that. So we were, we were in Clinton, Mississippi. So I trust you had a good time last week. We are continuing through Ephesians. So we are in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. <laughs> there's a story about a man that was, uh, he was uh, shipwrecked and he was on the deserted island and he had been there for a while and so finally the Coast Guard was able to locate him and uh, after several months of being on the island, they, they sent a, a rescue helicopter and they rescued him when they dropped down the line to pick him up, the basket to pick him up, he got into the basket and they whisked him away and so as they're uh, debriefing moving away from the island, many, many questions were uh, coming up. But one of the questions that they asked pretty much immediately when they left is, I noticed there were three huts on the island there. And he said, oh yeah, of course. And uh, they said, well, why, why did you have three huts on your island? And he said, well, uh, obviously one of those I lived in and one of them I went to church in. And they said, okay, well, why did you have three huts? What is the extra hut for? And he said, oh, well, that's where I used to go to church. You see, when we talk about unity, we talk about walking worthy of the calling that God's called us to, we're guilty of that. We're guilty of disunity. And even if we were the only people on our island, we may leave our church to find us another church. And it's so common in our world today for there to be discontent and disunity. I mean, turn on the news today, and you see it everywhere. But today we're going to talk about what Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 4 about unity and what the body of Christ should look like and how we should, uh, how we should uh, perform or how we should uh, be together uh, as a body and what that body should look like. And so let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing on our time this morning as we jump into Ephesians chapter 4. God, we come to you this morning and uh, God, we acknowledge you, Lord, as King of kings and Lord of all. God, with everything that is going around, uh, God, everything that's going on, God, so many things grab our attention. And, Lord, so oftentimes we are encouraged to be individuals. We are encouraged to be our own man. We're encouraged to have differences of opinion. But, God, you have called us to be a part of one body. And so, Lord, I pray today, God, that you'll speak to our hearts through your word. God, that we'll just slow down. God, that you'll calm our hearts God, the speed of life will just pause for just a few minutes, Lord, and, God, we can hear from you. God, as I think about experiencing God, that's the ultimate pinnacle of life, is to experience a relationship with the creator of the universe. And so, God, I pray this morning that you'll give us a glimpse into what that looks like, what that means for us as a body as a part of the body of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you'll change us. God, I pray you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I played baseball for many, 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 many years. And uh, so when I was a little boy growing up, I can remember that I it would always wait for the phone call. And so my parents, I'd be outside playing basketball or throwing a baseball or something, and, and they would come to the door and they'd say, Matt, guess what? Your coach just called. I'd say, all right, who am I playing for this year? And, and so they say, hey, you're playing for the Giants, or you're playing for the Cardinals. And uh, I remember I played for the Cardinals, and our coach would always tell us to get out there and warm up our little wings. And so we would get out there and, and throw the baseball, and we would, <clears throat> we would warm up. And uh, so I remember always anticipating that phone call. Every spring is when, when coach calls, who are we playing for? What's our team? What's the name of our team?" And so the coach would go through the list, and he, and he would call us. And so then, you know, my dad and my mom, we w- we would get all excited about this new team that I was playing for. And, and so we would, uh, you know, we would practice, and, and, and we would, uh, you know, prepare uh, for the season. You know, we'd get a jersey, or we'd get our, our team name on a hat. And, uh, of course, then, you know, if, after the season was over with, if you had a good season, you'd get to play All-Stars. And I can remember waiting for that call, you know, did I? That I do a good job this year? Am I, am I going to be called to play All-Stars? And I can remember when I was nine years old, uh, we went to State in All-Stars, went to Natchez, Mississippi. I'm going to share in a couple weeks a few stories about that. But uh, we went to Natchez and we played. And I can remember the coach saying, all right, look, you guys represent the Jones County All-Stars. So when you're at a restaurant, I remember we ate at Shoney's almost every day when you're at the restaurant, when you're on the ball fields, when you're sitting in the stands waiting to play, you represent this team. And so you guys need to remember that, that you're, you know, we're nine-year-olds. But he's saying, you don't need to act up, you need to remember that you are representative of this team. And so my dad would come home in the evenings before we would, you know, go to baseball practice, or before we'd go uh, on out to All-Stars eventually, and and he would practice with me, and, and he'd hit the baseball, and and I'd catch fly balls, and I'd work on ground balls. and Even my mom, I can remember, um, you know, my dad would be at work during the day, and i need to practice batting, and so we would go get tennis balls, and she would throw tennis balls from a close distance so I could get used to the speed of the ball. And so I, I remember getting that call, you know, and, and how it shaped everything that I did. You see, we all, we all want to have a sense of belonging. We want to belong to something, whether it's an organization or a family uh, and, you know, I've spent the, this entire last weekend, uh, this weekend, uh, uh, in foster training. And it, it is heart-shattering to hear some of the stories. Uh, and, and there's over 700 foster children in our system in Harrison County. It's unbelievable. And, and so we see this sense of belonging is, exists everywhere. Everybody wants to be a part of something. It gives us our identity of who we are. You know, like I said, I I played for the Jones County All-Stars. Or or maybe it shapes our worldview and how we see the world, like with foster children, that lack of belonging. And so Paul here in Ephesians, what he's done is he has given us theology in chapters 1 through 3. So we've spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about uh, the, the riches of the possessions that we have in Christ Jesus. We talked about being a saint. We talked about... Uh, the gift of salvation in Ephesians chapter 2. We talked about the church in Ephesians chapter 3. And and so with this gift or the, these riches that God gives us comes a responsibility. And so Paul then transitions into chapter 4 and we begin to get the ethical or the practical part of the theology that he's talking about here. And so he laid this blueprint for us. He, he spent a, an immense amount of time describing the indescribable gift of salvation that's unmerited by you and me. And he gives us glimpses into those characteristics. If you'll remember several weeks back, we talked about the defining characteristics uh, of believers, and one of those was peace that we talked about. He reminds us that we're created masterpieces, which is the ultimate theme of this entire study in Ephesians chapter 2. And and so here in chapter 4, now the attention goes to the actions of the believers, the, the instructions for activity uh, or ethical behaviors, if you will, that you and I should participate in. You see, when you think about theology, it's a big word a lot of times people run, through, run from, but theology and ethics are always intertwined. You see, theology always motivates your application. You do things because of what you believe your belief system will drive your actions. When we talked about the perception of God, you see, your perception of who God is will dictate or determine your interaction with Him. So what you believe, your belief system, will then drive how you act. But rules never motivate ethical behavior. So if if Paul were simply to give us this litany of rules, it would not be effective. You see, what motivates ethical behavior is an awareness of who God is. And so that's why Paul built this foundation of who God is in chapters 1 through 3 to then motivate us or to instruct us to who we are should be. You see, if Paul would have begun quite the opposite and given us the instructions, which in the next several weeks, we're going to see the instructions for the home. We're going to see the instructions for the family. We're going to see the instructions for marriage. And we're also going to see the instructions for spiritual warfare. And so as we talk about these applications or these ethical uh, situations that we're going to find ourselves in, or maybe we are currently in, we have to have a foundation of our theology and who Jesus is. And so uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul begins this ethical conversation with the unity of the body. And so he begins in in, uh, chat in verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, or urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Make note, to maintain the unity, not to create the unity. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5 says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so he talks about this unity of the body to maintain this spirit of unity. And he uses the analogy of the body. You see, your body and my body can't function without unity. Your foot can't provide balance if your leg doesn't cooperate. Very, very obvious statement here. And so as we talk about the unity of the gospel or the body of Christ, the most beautiful picture that we have of unity is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so he's building this, this uh, foundation for us to, to see what the perfect example of the body is. And, of course, is God the Father. In John chapter 17, these verses will come up. The Bible says that they may be one. Now, this is Jesus praying the, the priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And he says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they all may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So the perfect example of unity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is addressing this unity of the body. And by doing so, he's referencing some of the disunity that existed inside of the church. You see, disunity originates with pride. Every one of us have an opinion. And we oftentimes value our opinions more than we value our core values. I was thinking about this this week. What are What is the tie? There's a song, The Tie That Binds Us. What, are, what is the tie that binds us? I mean, think about that really for just a second. I mean, you can even answer out loud if you'd like. What is the cord, what is the strand of unity that causes you to congregate week after week after week with people who show up at this building called First Baptist Church of Bay St. Louis? There, there's, there's things that are brought up. There's things that are mentioned as we talk about this, this cord of unity, there has to be strength and core values. Now, if we zoom out just a little bit, uh, there's a church within rock-throwing distance of here. If we zoom out just a little bit, what is the cord, what is the strand of unity that causes us to be the same? Now, I can go ahead and tell you I know what the difference is, and I don't know a single person who goes over there, and it starts with the name on the front of the church. So what we've done as the the body of Christ in the church, in the the world today, whether it be Protestant versus Catholicism, whether it be within uh, the Protestant, you know, Methodist or Baptist or Baptist and missionary Baptist, we have created this massive division in the world. And we've done it based on the the small differences in which we have staked our stand and say, I will die for water by submersion, baptism by submersion, or I will stand till the the end for sprinkling or whatever it may be. The world knows all about our differences, trust me. There's an age-old conversation about Calvinism versus Arminianism and and are you Reformed in the theology circle. You hear all this terminology they know all about the differences. But the question is, what do we believe together? So, so this church that's here, wherever the nearest other church is, what is the tie that binds us? As I talk about, uh, you know, people ask, I, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with a, uh, a gentleman uh, this past week and a great conversation. And I always start with John fourteen six. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We have to agree on that. If you agree in submersion of baptism and sprinkling baptism, we'll, we'll talk about that later. If you, if you think that you've got to go to church on Sunday nights or you've got to go to church on Wednesday nights or whatever you may believe, you think you have to pray standing up or pray kneeling, whatever that may be. But if you don't believe John 14, 6, there's a problem. So we've got to go back to what are the core values? What is, the, what is that really really matters. I've seen church after church after church have division. I've seen churches split. One just here recently split, you know, back another place. And and it was over just simple things that do not matter. And so when I turn on the news and I hear all the conversations about this new bill in Mississippi, or I hear about canceled concerts in North Carolina, I ask myself this question, you've got to be kidding me. How did we get to this point? What, what is the tie that binds us? We all want to be so different. But might I encourage you this morning through Ephesians chapter 4 that there is one thing that is worth standing for. And so as we talk about unity, please, please approach this. I know Baptists like to be closed-minded, but please approach this with an open mind and say, what is it that I really stand for? And so as we talk about being worthy, walking worthy of the calling... Paul says here in verse 1, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So I, I believe what we need to start with this morning is what is the calling? I mean, really, what are we called for? We can talk, oh, yes, we need to get unified. You're right, Pastor. We need to get together. We need to be on the same page. We need to present the same image to, to the world that is lost and has no hope. So let me ask you the question, then, what is that calling? Well, if I like to look at different translations. This is what uh, the translation, uh, the message translation says in verse 1. He says, in light of all of this, here's what I want you to do. So in light of all that you've been told in Ephesians 1 through 3 that you are a created masterpiece, that you are a saint in the kingdom of God based on nothing that you've done, only because of the mercy of Jesus Christ do you have salvation. And so he says, I want you to walk worthy. I urge you to walk worthy of your calling. Now, I want to just point out something very obvious here. Not worthy of the Baptist church. You know, we have the, the, the Baptist faith and message, and we have this you know, confessional of the things that we believe. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Not worthy of what other people think. You know, what does James or Corey or the leadership of this church, how do they want me to act? No, that's not the question. Not worthy of what you think the Bible says or what I think the Bible says. No, he says worthy of your calling. And so I want to answer the question then this morning. Number one, what are we called for? Number two, what are we called to? And then number three, how do we respond? So let's start with what are we called for? So what is the reason of this calling? What are we called for? Well, very, very simply stated, you and I are called to one thing in life. If you do nothing in life, even if you uh, skip taxes, I know tomorrow's the big tax day, even if you skip taxes, you're going to be okay if you do this one thing. And that is that you have a relationship with Jesus. What are we called for? We're called for eternal life. That is the message that we should tattoo on our foreheads of life is that we are called to eternal life. I remember back in uh, February of 1998 when God reached out to me in grace And mercy and through the mire of religious activity, and he dug into me and he called me. I so specifically remember that night. It it was not in a condemning way, it could have been. I'm a sinner. It was not in a, uh, in a way, you know, Matt, you're a terrible person. And the only way you can be rescued is because of me. So I need you to, I need you to accept this or I want you to accept this or I'm g- uh, giving you an opportunity to accept this salvation. No, it was grace that called me and said, Matt, in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done, I still love you and gently reminded me that I could not save myself. It was the first time in my entire life that I ever realized that I needed a Savior. I know you may think that's crazy, but at the age of 18, I thought, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I've got this church thing down pat. I'm religious. I've I've never killed anybody, so I think I'm going to be all right. So many of our churches are filled with people who are exactly the same way. Is that when we talk about being called for eternal life, why is there disunity in the churches? Because there are some people in our midst who have not responded to that call. Oh, they've been called, but they've not responded to that call. In First Timothy six twelve, it says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. You see, God has either called you or he's calling you. There's only two types in here this morning. You see, for the unbeliever, this is why there is no peace in your life. If you're here this morning and you have not responded to the call of Jesus, I can probably tell you what your life is like. There's division in your life. There's no peace. You can't get along with other people. Oh, you may for a short time, but then there comes this parting of ways because there's no settling of peace in your heart, your spirit has never become united with the Spirit of God. And so because of that, there there is no peace. Remember Ephesians 3, the defining characteristic of a Christian. And so for the unbeliever who is being called, there's no unity because there's no response to that eternal life. So maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, Pastor, I'm a believer, so... So this manner worthy of calling for believers is this, is that we are promoting the furtherance of the gospel. We are putting our differences and our preferences aside so that those who do not know Christ will come to know Christ. So as a believer this morning, what are you doing to further the gospel? You see, when we talk about the calling, we are called to eternal life. That is the message of First Baptist Bay St. Louis, Methodist church, whatever type of church it is across the road, and any other church that's Protestant is that, or, or Catholic for that matter, is that we are called to the gospel, to Jesus. That's the message. The message is not what color we think the sanctuary carpet should be or what style of music that we think we, we should have in the church or, or how many times we should pray or how many songs we should sing. That's not the message of the church. The message of the church is simply this, that Jesus saves So what if that was the message that we portray to the lost and dying world? Do you think there'd be more people here this morning? So the calling is eternal life. So what is our response to that calling? Well, Paul, he writes it here. He says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. It means to behave or to uh, metaphorically to follow. I I know uh, I share a lot of Brazil stories, but a few trips back we were in Brazil and they had taken us, The, the water was up and so we couldn't, We couldn't go the normal route, and so they took us on canoes, and and we went through this crazy, crazy place. And we got out, and and we we were to walk. And they said, oh, it's not very far, which uh, I don't know if Fernanda's in here, but if a Brazilian tells you it's not very far, it is not true. It is very far. And so we're walking through the jungle. Now, I I mean literal jungle. You know, grass is hip high. There is no trail. Uh, The Brazilians that are leading us are barefooted. And, and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, at any second, an anaconda could take my life. You know, all these things come through your mind, or, or there are wild cougars in the jungle. I don't know, maybe there are parasites the, the size of, you know, pencil lead that could kill me. I really don't know. But we're just walking, and we're following one of the Brazilians named Batista. And we're, he's just leading us, and he's barefooted and walking through this jungle, but he knows where he's going. And so in spite of my uh, concern and in spite of my uncertainty of walking through wherever we were walking, we eventually made it to Ponta de Bacaba. We made it to the village that we were going to. Because we were walking in a direction behind someone who knew where they were going. In Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, he says, Who saved us, of course, is Jesus, and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And so God has called us to walk with him in sanctification or in growing in our relationship with Christ and with others. I mean, think about the body, the physical body. Our feet grows with our hands and our legs grow with our arms. And so the body of Christ then grows all together or should grow all together as well. And so as he's talking about this walking, as I mentioned, we were going to Dabacaba. but guess what? What that meant is we had a destination. Now, here's one of, the, one of the problems with the unity in the churches today is there is no destination. So if I were to ask you this morning, at what point in the journey are you? How, you know, what stage of the walk of life are you in spiritually? What would you say? You know, Rick Warren, he, he's famous for many things, but he made a diamond, a baseball diamond, and he, and he showed the progression of, you know, you're on first base in your walk with God, or you're in sec, on second base. Most of us come to church and we go home and we have no idea, you know, where we're going or how we're going or which direction we're going. We're not on a path. We're not following anything. We're just showing up and hoping that good things happen. You see, this calling that God calls us to has a destination when we walk. And that great calling that He bestows upon us has great privileges that carry great responsibilities. You see, you can't just randomly show up to church and expect to walk on this path. You see, the the process of sanctification doesn't happen overnight. Now, I've talked many, many times about that you and I have been freed from the penalty of sin, that Jesus stepped in and he took our place. And so the, the fancy word there is justification. And so because Jesus justified us from the penalty of sin, then now sanctification or growing in Christ is what is supposed to free us from the, the power of sin. So, justification frees us from the penalty of sin; sanctification frees us from the power of sin, and so the question then is why does a person continually find themselves giving into sin You, you may be a believer here this morning you say, "I just I keep falling into the sin well you're not you're not walking towards your calling there's no there's no uh, discipline in your walk towards God. And so it's been said oftentimes that, I heard this saying one time, that we have a million dollar salvation and a five cent response. You see, we've got this amazing salvation that God has called us to, to walk towards this salvation in a manner that's worthy of our calling, and yet our response is that we have no discipline, that we have, there's no walk, there's no, uh, there's no growth in our life. Many, many, many churches are full of people who brag about being there 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and yet today, they are no closer to God than they were the very day they stepped into that church. That is not sanctification. And so as disciples... Oftentimes, we want discipleship without discipline. That does not exist. So what are we called for? We're called for eternal life. That's the unity. That's the tie that binds us. So he he talks about not only calling, but he goes into verse 2 and talks about the characteristics. What are we called to? And so he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so he says here, we are called to, and he lists four things. Humility, gentleness or meekness, patience, and tolerance in love. Pay attention here that uh, he, he first mentions things that are related to our ego, humility, meekness, And then he moves into the relational side of these aspects. You see, an understanding of God's work is always an attack on your ego and on my ego. When we understand what God is doing in our lives, oftentimes, or well every time, it makes us realize how small we are and how big God really is. And and the purpose of that is to bring us into relation with God. You see, if we see ourselves bigger than we really are, then what that causes us to do is to see God smaller than he really is. And so he begins with humility. Humility is the grace that when you know it, when you know that you have it, you have lost it. Society views humility as weakness, right? They say, oh, well, you know, don't humble yourselves. You, you know, be a man's man. Stand up. Be, be independent. Humility, though, is not about drive or energy or ability. What humility is, is about valuing those around you. So in order to have humility, we must renounce self-centeredness, which is the most difficult thing to do for humanity. All of our energy in life is surrounded by and directed towards self. But what humility is, is the constant awareness of who God is and of our sinfulness. So it allows us to see ourselves for who we really are, which are dirty, rotten sinners, right? And so Paul says here that a characteristic of someone who's walking worthy of their calling is someone who puts others' interest, other interests ahead of their own. I've heard that joy is when you put Jesus, others, and yourself in that order. He says not only uh, humility but gentleness or meekness. Now, this is not weakness, what, what gentleness is? Power under control. Jesus was meek. The Bible says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We see the perfect example of meekness or gentleness when Jesus took on the form of a cross. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself and so, as we talk about this uh, this meekness or this gentleness, the Greek uses the word that is a soothing medicine or a, a colt that has been broken, or maybe even a soft wind. In each case, there's the uh, existence of power, but that power is under control you may be in the church and have a position of leadership or a position of power but are you using that in the form of gentleness to lead others not based on your own agenda but on the agenda of the body of Christ you see gentleness is never ever more abused than it is in the home we're going to talk about that in a few weeks you see when we talk about gentleness let me ask you a question dad fathers are you leading your house with an iron fist or with gentleness of spirit are they seeing you walk in gentleness or are you commanding them to follow you regardless of how you act you see parents uh, our kids are following us they're mirroring everything that we do and as fathers it's our responsibility to mirror our good father our heavenly father Jesus Christ, and that is through gentleness. He talks about this humility, humbling ourselves, putting other people before ourselves, and and gentleness, having the ability through gentleness, the power, but that is under control. The third thing he lists here is patience. Literally means being long-tempered, the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. You see, we, in churches today, we want comfort. We strive for Thicker padding on the pews and shorter uh, messages and uh, whatever we can do to, to bring comfort to our lives, that's what we want. I see some of you smiling. I've been asked to shorten the messages. I already know. <laughs> patience is an exercise in enduring annoyances and difficulties over a period of time. And so to have patience, what we must do is we must renounce the tyranny of our own agenda. I mean, think about it with your kids. Uh, I have small children, and so sometimes, you know, I've got a lot of things going on, and you know, I work full time, and, and I get an opportunity to be with you guys on Sunday, and so that takes several hours of study during the week, and I'm involved in some other things, and then the kids have activities. I mean, life is busy. And so for me to exhibit patience to my children, it, it would be very easy. And from a, an adult standpoint, I could even maybe justify the fact that, listen, I don't have time to listen to the story about your color-breaking this morning. But is that really leading my family the way the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father leads us? And so we talk about patience. It's talking about removing my agenda and putting the agenda of God the Father first you see if christian attitudes cannot prevail in tense times they have no claim to be genuine it's been said that if a believer can't get along with god then he can't get along with other believers you see that's what i mentioned earlier is that a lot of times in our churches there is discontent there is disunity and a lot of times it starts with unbelievers ironically these attitudes that Paul's talking about here are all listed as fruits of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. He says in Galatians 5 the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against things that there are, such things there is no law. And so if we want to say well this is the test. This is the inspection point, if you will, to say, you know, am I, am I a believer? Am I following after that one calling of eternal life? Have I responded to that calling? Well, the, the way you answer that question is, what are the life characteristics that are exhibited in my life? Not what I want other people to see, not what I want you to think about me, but when life is tough, when things are hard, or when I do not get my way, how do I respond? You see, a person who walks worthy of the manner in which they will bear fruit, it is their nature. He, he closes here with tolerant love. It's been said, be careful of standing on your rights, for then God may stand on his. You see, when we talk about tolerant love, it means that people that come to the church that are unbelievers or people that are in a different stage of, of their walk with Christ, they are not going to act the way you and I think they should. Guess what unbelievers act like? Unbelievers. Guess what children act like? Children. Right? I mean, you can't put your six-year-old in the car and say, drive me to Walmart. Because they're children. And so it's the same thing we talk about tolerant love, is that when, we remi- when we're reminded of what our calling is, that, hey, this is not about me, this is about the furtherance of the gospel, it brings about the bond of peace that he mentions here. In and verse 3. And so, so we talked about this calling, these characteristics. Last thing I want to mention real briefly here is then he mentions the commonalities. And he talks about seven things. He says we are a part of one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father those are the commonalities for which we exist and I would argue this morning that if you take that list of those seven commonalities and you go to pretty much any church in our area we're probably going to have the same commonalities and so the question is not how can we build this kingdom but it's how can we build God's kingdom and it's based upon our commonalities not our differences So we've got to put away the differences that we have. We've got to put aside our own agenda, and we've got to say, God, through humility, God, through gentleness, through patience and tolerant love, God, we're going to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what unity is. It's it's so ironic that the first five ones that we deal with here, this oneness, all the first five all deal with salvation. And when we get that right, when we get eternal life right in our life then the last two deal with our response to eternal life so what are we called for we're called for eternal life what are we called to Well, we're called to walk in a manner that's worthy of that through patience and meekness and uh long suffering through tolerant love and last but not least how do we respond to that well consider the ant Proverbs chapter 6 verse 6 says Go to the ant, O sluggard Consider her ways and be wise Without having any chief officer or ruler She prepares her bread in summer And gathers her food in harvest I thought about First Baptist Bay St. Louis Without a a pastor-in-chief, if you will You don't have a, a senior pastor at this moment But that doesn't change your unity It doesn't change what your calling is Proverbs 30, verse 24 says, Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Consider the ant. When you're out in your yard or you're out walking down Main Street or you're out of the park and you see an ant bed, consider the ant. And may it remind you that that's what unity is. Did you know that an ant has two stomachs? one stomach they use for their own food but their second stomach is where they store food for other ants isn't that amazing so when you see an ant bed consider the ant consider how when they're stealing food from your kitchen and taking it outside that they're all in single file in perfect unity when they're when they're building something an ant bed or or hey when you destroy their ant bed they don't send out four or five. They send out four or 5,000 to figure out, hey, what's going on here? Consider the ant. The unity that exists in something that is so small in the creation of God, could, the, the, the task that they can accomplish is unbelievable. So, so how can we be like the ant? Well, Luke nine twenty three. this is what Jesus said. He says to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. That's how you consider the end. Is that you deny yourself. That you come to a point in your life that you say, you know what, this isn't about me. And that you you say, I'm going to take up my cross. What does that mean? That means furthering the gospel. Take up my cross daily. Furthering the gospel and following Jesus. So wherever you may find yourself in the walk of sanctification... You are called to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. And that calling is to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus through salvation that he so freely gives. Let's pray.